What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? What is going on? What is the latest and greatest? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's feeling fantastic and I'm sure ecstatic, knowing that it's a short week for most, if not all, as we celebrate Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, even Boxing Day for those north of the border in Canada, as we wrap this all up in one week. But here to unwrap everything that's going on in the sports universe is none other than yours truly, your host, Jay Reels, here of the Jay Reels Podcast. For the first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been with me from episode 1 to now 104, I welcome you guys back. It's a Monday, December 23rd, in the year of our Lord, 2019, Christmas Eve squared, the J Reels What's the Deal segment, that's right, what is on tap for this podcast? Well, it goes as follows, we'll cover everything that's happening in Major League Baseball as far as the latest free agent signings, including Ioannis Cespedes' 2020 proclamation, which certainly had all the Met fans giddy, including myself, so you know I have my two cents on that as well as what's going on in the college football landscape, especially the playoff, which will take place this Saturday between LSU, Oklahoma, and Ohio State and Clemson. A few predictions, a preview of that. Also, NBA, they have this million-dollar gamble that I'm calling. Although it's in the early stages, but the NBA wants to generate more interest early on in the regular season where they're including this million-dollar prize for the 30 teams and players. And I don't know, it sounds a little cockamamie, but... We'll touch on that, as well as a big trade in the NHL over the past week, including a former MVP of the league just two years ago who played for the New Jersey Devils. So we'll talk about that. But as Week 16 of the NFL concludes tonight in Minnesota between the Packers and Vikings, a good one where the Packers could clinch the NFC North with a win, and if they do lose, they will be even with the Vikings going into Week 17 to see how that all unfolds, where a week from today, it will be clear as to who will play in the postseason to fight for the Lombardi Trophy down in Miami, Super Bowl 54 on February the 2nd. And also a week from today is Black Monday, where there are a lot of coaches that are on the plank. If you're Pat Shermer in New Jersey for the Giants, if you're Jason Garrett down in Dallas, which I'm sure a lot of Cowboy fans are hoping that as a late Christmas gift that Garrett will be shown the door and bring in somebody. I'm sure Kermit the Frog will probably be the coach and a lot of Cowboys fans will be happy. But week 16 yesterday to me, Not a lot of drama. There are three storylines, and they're juicy and major storylines when you think about it. And we'll start off in the NFC, because to me, I call that the NFC hot potato. And the reason why it's the NFC hot potato, because when you look at the last few weeks, whether you're, especially in the NFC West, where the San Francisco 49ers, it seems as if the Niners and Seahawks are flip-flopping as to who is in first place or who has the number one seed in the conference Because of what has taken place. It seems like when San Francisco wins one week, then the same day or later that day, the Seahawks lose. So then you look at the Niners as, oh, wow, now they're going to be the team to beat in the NFC. And then you look at last week where the Falcons went into Santa Clara and upset the 49ers. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, geez. But then you had the Seahawks on the road in Carolina as they beat the Panthers. And then they catapulted themselves to the one seed. So then you fast forward to just yesterday's games and you look at what Seattle did at home against the Arizona Cardinals and the Cardinals, although they're 5-9-1, but they've remained spunky throughout and here they are trying to go out like a lion here considering that they've been competitive and stayed in some of these games. Well, they go to the Pacific Northwest to that CenturyLink field which seemed to be, when you think of the Legion of Boom days, uh, just an impossible place to play. Certainly hasn't been the case in recent memory. As the Cardinals go in there and win a 27-13 matchup to where now they drop down 
to the five seed. And the Niners, Saturday night against the Rams, they've punted their postseason hopes goodbye as they get another final second field goal from Robbie Gold. They win 34-31, kind of reminiscent to two weeks prior when they won in New Orleans where Gold at the buzzer kicks a game-winning field goal. And as of right now, the Niners certainly have taken control of the top slot in the NFC with just one game to play, and who knows? But can't you see San Francisco losing next week? Oh, and by the way, they're playing the Seattle Seahawks. So talk about a game for all the marbles, for the one seed, or at least for a bye, because as convoluted as the NFC is right now, we have to see what's going to happen in New Orleans. We're also going to have to see what's going to happen with Green Bay, especially tonight, because if they win the night and next week, chances are they could fall into that two slot, maybe even possibly a one seed. But again, we have to see how everything shakes down. It's going to be obviously riveting to see what's going to happen with all these teams that pretty much have the same record at the top of the NFC. But that's how it's been. And you wouldn't be surprised. Now, the game is in Seattle next week. And considering Seattle lost at home, we talked about the home field advantage. But you know that they're going to be geared up, ready to go. Sunday night, final game of the regular season. It's going to boil down to those two teams. And we will see who is going to not only win the NFC West, but also possibly get one of the top two slots and have a bye to see who they'll face in the division round for this upcoming playoff. Now, like I said, the NFC is topsy-turvy in a sense where we don't know who's going to go where and we'll certainly break down all the permutations later on. But that was storyline number one. The second storyline that you have going back to NFC Hot Potato is what happened in Philadelphia yesterday where you have the Philadelphia Eagles who, let's face it, they've done anything and everything to grab this division and certainly Dallas has done everything to throw it to them to catch it with two hands to say, hey, we don't want it, so take it. So guess what? Philadelphia went and did what they had to do. Certainly wasn't the sexiest game. 17-9, to they jumped up to a 10-0 lead and they were able to hang on to win 17-9. And right now, all the Cowboy fans, I'm sure like the Steeler fans, which is point number three and I'll get to in a minute. Right now, they're probably feeling... Let's not even make it to the postseason because, not to say it's going to be one and done, but it's certainly not going to be a magic carpet ride to say the least because we all understand that once you get to the postseason, you never know anything could happen any given Sunday. We get all the cliches that are out there. But the one thing that's certain with the way these teams have played down the stretch, it was almost as if this wasn't a classic Dallas-Philadelphia game by any stretch, but it's almost as if somebody has to win this division by default and the team that's just going to play an inch better is going to end up winning it, and away we go. And I understand the Cowboy fan this morning, they're hurting. I'm sure they're even a little bit bitter, knowing that they've squandered this great start that they had. They were 3-0, and remember, and I get they were against the dregs of the league at the time. But now here they are at 7-8, and and part of the reason that they, as the fan base, probably doesn't want the team to go to the playoffs, not only because they feel like they're not going to go too far, because they're probably going to have to play either San Francisco or Seattle in that first round, But even more so because of the owner, if Dallas wins that game against the Redskins on Sunday, and if the Eagles fall to the Giants at MetLife, not only will Dallas win the division, but they'll host a playoff game. And I'm sure all the Cowboy fans, and of course the owner, they're going to look at it and say, well, hey, Jason Garrett made the postseason, so we're going to keep him for another year. And that's why I said, Kermit the Frog or Gonzo, or whatever you want to call it, Jack in the Box, if they all want to be the next coach of the Dallas Cowboys, I'm sure the Cowboy fan will say, hey, bring him on in, let's go, let's get Garrett out of here, because we're just sick and tired of looking at his face on that sideline. 
So that's number two. And obviously we'll talk about how that's going to shake down next week in the NFC East. Now the third thing is the Steelers. And that was just a brutal performance yesterday. As I've said before, and I'll say it one more time, the Steelers were only going to go as far as their defense is going to take them. Well, when you look at the last two weeks, they gave up 17 to Buffalo at home and 16 to the Jets, including the touchdown on the first drive, which gives Sam Donald credit. Great throw. Robbie Anderson back in the end zone. Great catch by him. But they weren't able to muster up anything else as far as touchdowns are concerned. Three more field goals. But here's the problem. When the Steelers have no running game to boot and Devlin Hodges has been solved because even though he was completed all of his passes in the first half before he was yanked for Mason Rudolph, but two of them were interceptions, including one in the end zone. And when you have in-depth quarterback play, especially from a guy, let's face it, undrafted rookie, doesn't have the greatest arm strength, certainly has a lot of guts, obviously an underdog in many ways, shapes, and forms, but it's not going to cut it when you're playing December pressure-packed football to try to get to a postseason for a fan base and for an organization that if it's not the Super Bowl, it's nothing. It's a bad season. So when you look at the game yesterday, they certainly did not perform well on offense. James Conner, again, was injured. You're probably not going to see him next week in Baltimore. Who knows what's going to happen with Marquise Pouncey as he left the game and then you saw what happened with the exchange between B.J. Finney and whether it was Devlin Hodges or even Mason Rudolph. Rudolph had to leave the game because I believe on that first play, once Pouncey was out, he stepped on Rudolph and then Rudolph falls back and had about three jets fall on top of him where he injured his shoulder. Who knows what the results are as of right now. And then you had Hodges and Finney, especially in shotgun, fumbling the ball left and right, including that last play of the game where they threw up that Hail Mary, which I thought was going to be picked. But to think that Juju Smith-Schuster actually had a play on the ball, but he jumped a little too soon. His timing was off. And it went right through his hands. I'm sure if he was playing consistently, he probably would have caught the ball. But no excuses. That's a ball that he should have caught and could have extended the drive. And who knows, if the Steelers would have gone in and punched it into the end zone, right now they would be the sixth seed, still the sixth seed in the AFC. But that is not the case because the Titans, even though they lost to the Saints yesterday at home, because they lost to the Saints and it wasn't a conference game, the conference records and the strength of schedule belongs to the Titans. So if the season ended today they would be going to Kansas City round one in the AFC and not the Steelers. And just like the Cowboy fan probably feels this morning, even more deeper because of the connection with the coach, if you're a Steeler fan today, now of course, do you want to make the postseason? Or I'll say it from first person. Yes. It's a season where nobody expected the Steelers to do anything, especially after losing Roethlisberger and getting off to the 0-3 and 1-4 start. But as I said before, the defense could only do but so much. I don't think they have a magic carpet ride in them. I get it. Just like I said a minute ago, any given Sunday, you never know. That's why they play the games, etc. But they have no running game whatsoever. And you need to have some semblance of a running game when you have quarterback play like the Steelers have had pretty much for the last three or four weeks. And there is no way, unless the defense is going to, just going to be 75 steel curtain revisited. Because that's the only way they're going to win these games. And of course, if the first round, if they do happen to make it, they're going to play Kansas City. And all they could hope for, if they get that far, is a 20-degree day with winds that are up to 30 miles an hour where Mahomes can't throw the ball all over the lot. They're going to have to run the ball most of the game. And they're going to have to win an ugly 17-16, 20-17 type of game. 
But anyway, but that's for down the road. I'm getting too far ahead of myself. But that's what you got here as far as the AFC is concerned. And then one other thing when you think about it, which is actually mind-boggling to say the least. The Raiders also factor into this postseason mix in the AFC because with their win yesterday, they actually have a shot to get the sixth seed. But of course, they need a ton of help. Not only do they need the Titans to lose, the Steelers to lose, but they also need the Colts to lose to the Jaguars. Now, that's a possibility because Indy goes to Jacksonville to close out the season. And although Jacksonville's been awful here over the last four or five weeks, but because the game's at home, Gardner Minshew, who certainly the clock has struck 12, he's, since he's been back, he's been hit or miss, but did not perform well yesterday in a loss to the Falcons. But for pride's sake, and maybe for moving forward to be a part of this organization, part of this team, whether Nick Foles is back or not, you would think they probably want to go out on a high note. And if they could spoil the Colts' opportunity to get to the postseason, I believe the Colts don't even have the tiebreakers because obviously they lost to Pittsburgh. And off the top of my head, I can't remember what they did. I think they split with Tennessee, but they won't make it to the postseason. But in order for the Raiders to do so, they would need the Colts to lose on top of the Steelers and Titans losing. And of course, the Raiders have to win in Denver, which isn't going to be easy because Denver's actually played well down the stretch. So that's what you got there in the AFC. And as we go through it here, because I mean, we could pretty much cut to the standings. I'm not going to go through any of these games yesterday. I mean, why even bother? Because the schedule... Now, Saturday, of course, you had the really good games. And as we go through the standings, we'll recap it that way. So when you're looking at the seeding here, Baltimore, they clinched everything yesterday with a 31-15 victory in Cleveland. I know the story was Odell arguing with Freddie Kitchens on the sideline. And I did not watch the game. I was all into the Steeler Jet game. But I went to the red zone. And the one thing I saw that after... Scoring a touchdown at 24-15. Why did Freddie Kitchens go for two? And I actually argued with somebody on Facebook about this and they tried to defend it. And it's indefensible. How are you going to go for two there even though the point of the matter could be, well, no, you're just down a touchdown. Well, if you don't get it, you're down two scores. Why would you want to put yourself in a situation down two scores against a team that bleeds the clock to death when they run the ball to the tune of how many yards yesterday? 260 some odd yards, whatever it was. As we know, the Ravens have been a juggernaut all year. But Freddie Kitchens, obviously, he's going to be probably on that path to the plank for Black Monday. And if that's not the case, then Jimmy Haslam needs to sell the team because that's just an abomination on what they've done this year. But anyway, I digress. The Ravens have it all wrapped up, so you would think that they're going to rest everybody next week when they play the Steelers, so that could bode well for the Steeler fans or those looking to see if the Steelers can make it to the playoffs despite the fact they need help. So that's what you have there. But the one thing I'm going to say real quick about Baltimore, and it has nothing to do with Lamar, because he's the MVP, hands down. Just give it to him right now. Don't even bother. But here's the one thing. I would almost think if the Ravens lose next week, and I get that the Raven fans, they don't want to see the Steelers win to save their lives. But the one thing for sure, can they go into the postseason with a 12-game winning streak and then run the table to a Super Bowl? Now, we've seen, of course, the Dolphins, perfect, and... The flip side of that, where the New England Patriots in 2007, when they went 18-0, we all know what happened to them losing to the Giants in Super Bowl 42. but obviously it's not that comparable when you look at it from a historical perspective, but just in a sense where you go 12 straight games winning in the regular season and then right to the postseason where it's almost as if that you'd rather get a loss out of the way so you could almost start anew. Because the pressure will continue to mount as you win these games. And again, it's not from a historical perspective as the Dolphins and Patriots 
uh, tried to do 12 years ago. But at the same time, I would almost think that if you're John Harbaugh, you'd have to rest everybody. You'd have to make sure that you want to get your team, hey, maybe playing for a quarter or maybe even playing for a half. But then after that, that's it. You sit everybody. And if they happen to win the game, you win the game. And if they lose, I'm sure they're not going to lose sleep over it because, again, they have everything wrapped up. So that's just a little perspective as far as what that game could mean if the Ravens do win, knowing that can they finish off the job in Miami hoisting a Super Bowl trophy over their heads, closing out their season, winning 15 straight games. And then I'm sure you're probably going to hear, oh, wow, the Ravens belong up there probably as one of the top teams of all time, which, ugh, just the thought of that has my stomach turned. All right, so you have that, and then you have New England with their game Saturday against Buffalo, where they actually had to come from behind. Buffalo showed a lot of toughness, but at the same time, I had no, I certainly didn't worry whether or not that the Pats were going to lose, despite the fact, I mean, the game was in their building. If it was in Buffalo, I probably would have thought differently, but the Pats now currently in the two slot and not entrenched at 12-3, and three, only because Kansas City, with them winning in Chicago handily, 26-3 to three last night, if the Dolphins somehow, some way, upset the Patriots in New England, which is not going to happen, and if Kansas City wins at home against the LA Chargers, they will have the tiebreaker, and Kansas City will have the two-seed, where the New England Patriots will be at a three-seed. And then, interestingly enough, when we go down to the four-slot in Houston... If Houston wins their game against Tennessee, and if KC loses to the Chargers, then Houston will be your three seed, and KC will be your four seed because Houston beat KC earlier this year. So you still have the seeding there to deal with, but it's a lot more, it's not as convoluted as it is out in the NFC. And then you have Buffalo entrenched in the five seed, and then like I mentioned earlier, Tennessee right now, currently at eight and seven, has a six seed. But we all know the combinations. If Tennessee wins, they're in. If Tennessee loses and Pittsburgh wins, they're in. If the Raiders, as I mentioned one more time, Tennessee, Pittsburgh, and Indianapolis all lose, then Oakland will be in. As weird as that sounds. Because Indianapolis is 7-8, and eight, but because of a tiebreaker there. And I know they played there earlier this year, but still... They uh, certainly can make it. And as it, weird as that is, let me just look here. Right, because they'll be 8-8. Eight and eight. Yeah, because they'll all be tiebreak. And Indianapolis, yeah, Oakland, they did beat them early this year. And they would actually have the succeed if all those teams lose and it breaks out right for them. So that's what you have there in the AFC. As far as the NFC is concerned, San Francisco, and this could change next week, as we all know, with Seattle. But right now, they're the one seed followed by New Orleans, Green Bay at 11-5. and five. If Green Bay wins tonight, they win the NFC North. If they lose tonight and they lose next week to the Lions where the Vikings beat the Bears next week, then they will win the division and they will be the team that will host a playoff game as opposed to right now them being the sixth seed in the NFC. Remember, the Rams are gone. So the six teams that are in the top part part of the bracket in the NFC. That's what you're going to see. It's just a matter of the seeding. Philadelphia or Dallas, depending on what happens next week, as I mentioned earlier, will be the four seed. They're locked in there. They're not going anywhere. But of course, they can't rest any of their players because they both need to win, or at least Philly needs to win to win a division. And obviously, if they lose, Dallas wins, then they'll be the division champs. 
And then you have Seattle and Minnesota. And as I said, all that could change throughout the course between now and next week. And when you look at some of the other news and notes of the NFL, there were a couple of things, actually quite a few things that happened last week. You had Terrell Suggs, who I don't even know if he played in the game last night. I did not watch the game. I was uh, actually traveling and doing a radio show. So I did not get to see if Suggs was in uniform for the game last night, but he was hoping to be claimed by Baltimore, but got claimed by Kansas City. So that was pretty interesting from that regard where he could possibly go up against his former team down the road if it turns out that way. Last week, I know I teased about Janoris Jenkins. He was my zero of the week. Well, obviously, he got the last lap because he's in New Orleans right now. I didn't watch the game because I was involved in the Steeler game, so who knows if he suited up. You also have the situation with Josh Gordon again where it looks like this could be it. Another suspension where he's banned for PD substance and just a shame that it's uh, just another detour, not only in the career, but in the life of a one Josh Gordon. And then Tom Coughlin, speaking of Jacksonville, he was ousted as the VP of Ops considering two years ago they went to the AFC Championship game and then now, what is their record? 4-11 and or 4-12 and or 5-10, and I don't even know what it is, but they certainly have fallen back and maybe even Doug Marone's job could be in jeopardy considering that the aforementioned Tom Coughlin was shown the door. So those are just some news and notes there. If you're looking at the NFL of this final week where players could have an impact as far as not only just going into this final week, but also the postseason. And then, of course, the situation with Seattle with Gordon losing a weapon uh, as far as on the outside is concerned. And then to wrap that all up with Suggs and see what kind of impact he has with Kansas City. So that's what you have there in the NFL, people. It's going to be interesting to see how next week is going to shake down, break down. And a lot of these games were actually moved as I look through the schedule next week. And obviously, we pretty much know who's playing who, but it's just a matter of times. Now, I know that a couple of these games were flexed to the 4.30 time slot, or 425, I should say. Because as we look at it right now, and I'm only going to go through the games of note. Your 1 o'clock games, Chargers-Chiefs, Bears-Vikings, Dolphins-Patriots, Saints-Panthers, Redskins, oh no, Redskins-Cowboys is a 4 o'clock game. And Eagles-Giants are 4 o'clock. That, as a matter of fact, I think those two games were flexed to the 4 o'clock window, as well as Ravens-Steelers and I believe Texans-Titans. Because obviously they don't want to have the team that's playing at 1 o'clock, let's say if they win, and then whomever's playing at 4 o'clock, then they, of course, the pressure's on them. They don't want to scoreboard watch, and even vice versa. So let's say if Pittsburgh loses their game, then Tennessee could just kind of coast or whatever it may be, or who knows, or maybe even Houston, they may not be able to go for uh, a shot at the three seed if they know that the Pats lost early in the day against Miami. So you have all that to deal with. So the way they broke it down was pretty simple, just to make sure that a lot of these games are going up against one another as opposed to offsetting and separating the one and 425 slots. But that's what you have there. And again, your Sunday night game, is 49ers Seahawks. That's for all the marbles, not only for the division, but I'm sure a bye, if not a one seed, but a two seed in the NFC. So good stuff, fascinating stuff. And one last thing, it's interesting because I was looking at my over-unders and they're pretty bad. But as I go into the final week, my over-unders right now, now I just lost with Oakland yesterday because I had him as an under at six. 
And you can also forget about Dallas because I had them nine over and they are obviously going to fall short. But there's one team that remains that I hope, and again, it could possibly happen for me to go three and three this year. And that would be Indianapolis because they're seven and a half. And right now they're at seven and eight. So if Indianapolis wins next week, I'll have a two and four over under year, which is awful. And if they do win, it's just a very average 500. Because my other two teams that I won, or the two teams that are victorious, were New England at 11, and they already have 12, and Seattle 8.5, and, and they're already at 12, or they're at 11, excuse me. And then the other under was San Francisco, was 8, and they remember, they started the year off 8-0. and So that was certainly an awful pick by me. So we'll see what happens there with Week 17 in Indianapolis, and then we'll put those babies to bed for... 2019 and hope to do a lot better next year 2020 so that's the latest and greatest in the NFL to kind of stick with the football but we'll go to the college circuit now again with all these bowl games I'm certainly not going to get wrapped up in what's happening so for those who were an alma mater at a certain school or follow a certain university uh uh-uh I'm not going to get into it I'm barely going to get into the college football playoff. Of course, I have to. And obviously, why not? Because this is for supremacy. And it's the first championship that's crowned for the new year every year. But as far as the Final Four is concerned, it's fascinating because you have four teams with four very good quarterbacks. Of course, the Heisman Trophy winner there and Joe Burrow, LSU. And Jalen Hurts, who is uh, one of the runner-ups there for Oklahoma. Justin Fields of Ohio State. And Clemson, we all know, the reigning champ with Trevor Lawrence. So you have very sexy matchups all around. The 4 o'clock game and then the 8 o'clock game back-to-back on a Saturday, which is good. So it's right between Christmas and New Year's before you get to go out that night to celebrate or do whatever it is that you want to do for this holiday week. You could get to chew on both of these games. And to just cut to the chase, this has been LSU's year from the start. And it was culminated not only by the win at Alabama, but also the SEC championship game where they obliterated Georgia. And I can't see them slowing down here. I think Oklahoma, they're going to put up a good fight. You figure Jalen Hurts has definitely shown and proved that leaving the factory that is Alabama, that he was able to produce, not to say that Oklahoma is is a shabby contender by any stretch, but at the same time, having both of those guys at the helm there for each of their programs is going to be interesting to see but I could just see LSU outlasting them and obviously they have a very good defense you would think that Oklahoma will probably put some points up but uh, to me this is just the year of LSU and if they do get slowed down here or even lose this game I think it would be a shock now I understand a lot of people may think hey Oklahoma is going to be a formidable opponent and rightfully so they deserve to be here but like I said when you play in the SEC and you go up against the likes of Alabama and even Georgia to a lesser degree if you don't come out of this Final Four going to a championship then uh, obviously that's that would be a rough loss and then in the other game Clemson we get that they didn't play anybody this year it's not their fault they play in the ACC and they're going up against an Ohio State team of course no Urban Meyer everybody thinks you know he's still the coach of the team that's not the case but when the Ohio State, as we all know, they play in the Big 12. And how I look at it is, I just think Trevor Lawrence and company, they want to show the world that we are champions. Not only do they deserve to be there, 
Dabble Sweeney and company, I'm sure they're going to puff out their chest and let the world know, or at least the college football world know that not only that do they belong, but this is our year to go back to back. This will possibly be their fourth straight time to go to the title game. And I think that they're going to do just enough. I could see this game being a shootout back and forth game where I feel the LSU-Oklahoma, I could see LSU just pulling away late. But with Ohio State, listen, they can rack up the points just as good as anybody. And they're certainly a top flight opponent. But I think the world would want to see LSU and Clemson, another SEC-ACC matchup. Remember, it's been Clemson-Alabama the last three years, so why not throw LSU in the mix to see if they could dethrone the champs? So that's what I'm looking at here this weekend. I'm looking at LSU-Oklahoma, LSU pulling away late. I don't even know what the spreads are, so I couldn't even tell you. And then in the other game, I like that to be just a shootout. I could see that being 45-41, but I'm going to go with the Tigers of Clemson to meet the Tigers of LSU in the national championship game, which will be the day after Easter. No, January the 13th, because as I said last week or whatever it was, two weeks ago, why they're playing this championship game 16 days after the playoff is an abomination. I just don't get it. But be it as it may, that's what it is, and that's what uh, we're going to have to deal with here. So that's your college football. And as we move along here, we'll turn our attention. I was going to get into the winter sports, but I want to turn my attention to baseball right now only because of not only the Ioannis Cespedes story that uh, came out last week, and of course you want to get my take on that, but uh, a lot of transactions have taken place here over the course of the last week. A lot of the minor stuff because we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with Josh Donaldson. We're still, there's still a few guys that are out there that are wondering you know, where are these guys going to sign. I know Donaldson, it's either going to be Atlanta or maybe even Washington with the Nationals, obviously with Rendon now in Anaheim. So we'll uh, certainly keep our fingers on the pulse with that. But even with uh, Donaldson and even a guy like Marcelo Zuna, who's a very good outfielder, above average outfielder and a good stick. But the free agents are starting to get scratched off the list here. Because as you look and see that yesterday, the Toronto Blue Jays got into the mix to the signing of four years, $80 million with uh, former Dodger pitcher Hyun Jun Ryu. I always butcher his name. So the Blue Jays think that we may not be able to compete with the Yankees or the Rays or maybe even the Red Sox in the AL East. But knowing that they have a very good young nucleus that uh, obviously anchored by Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, among other players. So if they get some type of starting pitching there, and they're also now rumored to be in the mix for David Price. And the Red Sox looking to unload him to perhaps see if they could take whatever money that would belong to Price and move that to the Mookie Betts bank account. Because we all know Mookie Betts, a lot of trade rumors swirling around him going into his walk year as a Red Sox in 2020. Obviously, a lot of talk about Francisco Lindor, even rumored maybe with the Yankees, which to me, you know what, I'll hold off on that just for a minute. Let me go through some of these signings because I, I got a problem with the, this Yankee-Lindor thing and even to another degree, what the Yankees may do as far as the rest of this offseason is concerned. So to go right through it, Dallas Keuchel is another guy who signed with the Chicago White Sox. He signed just, uh, what was it, three years, $55 million. The White Sox also signed Gio Gonzalez, former Brewer, 
Washington National, Oakland A, etc. A one-year deal. So the White Sox, who have been very active here this offseason, they re-signed Jose Abreu, Yasmani Grandal, now the two pitchers. So they're trying to see if they could somehow get to the top of the AL Central among the likes of the Twins and even Indians for that matter. You also had Julio Tehran go to the Angels for a year. Justin Smoke signed a year with Milwaukee. Michael Franco, the former Philadelphia Philly third baseman, signs a one-year deal with KC. So you had guys like that off the list, but you still have you know Donaldson and Ozuna and a few others that I haven't mentioned. Yasiel Puig is another guy out there that could be intriguing for someone. I guess the price has to be right. But as far as the Yankees... And they've been rumored for a couple of guys here over the course of the last week. And I didn't really get into like the whole... I talked about the Cole signing last week, of course. But I didn't really get into what they could do the rest of this offseason. Because how I felt is, after getting Garrett Cole, and that was the one guy that they obviously had a laser-focused bullseye attempt. But the Yankees, if they didn't do anything else this offseason, they were still winners. And just to think that they're actually in talks for Lindor... Well, if you're the GM of the Indians, Mark Chernoff, or Mike Chernoff, excuse me, I'm thinking of the FAN director, whose son, Mike Chernoff, is the GM. The first person I'm calling to ask is going to be Gleyber Torres. And Brian Cashman, I know it'll probably be tough for him to even think about hanging up the phone because you're getting Lindor back with two more years, but you're going to have to pay him big money. I would just think, just keep Torres. What's the big deal? But the other rumor that's come up of recent note is the Yankees were desperate for left-handed hitting. And we know that Aaron Hicks is going to be on the shelf. He's a switch hitter, but he's going to be on with the Tommy John surgery. We know Didi is now in Philadelphia. They did resign Brett Gardner. But the one guy that seems to be on the Yankees' radar is the one Kyle Schwarber. And to me, that makes more sense than Lindor because although it puts a little bit of a quandary because Schwarber is a... Definitely destined to be a DH at some point in his career because he's not a great fielder. We know about his power, and especially in that building, Yankee Stadium, oh my goodness, he'll hit 50 home runs in his sleep. But the thing is, you have to also delegate some of those at-bats in DH to Giancarlo Stanton, maybe even Gary Sanchez, who if you listen to the podcast many weeks ago or after the Yankees lost, I think the Yankees should trade Gary Sanchez. And if the Yankee fan that's listening for the very first time is falling out of their chair right now thinking, what are you, crazy j Reels? Trade Gary Sanchez for what? Well, just to refresh your memory, your lineup is right-hand dominant. You have a bunch of thumpers, and I don't need to go through the names. You know who they are. But you have four guys that can hit 25 home runs minimum. And you know what? Let me go through them, by the way. DJ LeMahieu, who's going to be a free agent after next year, by the way. Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Gleyber Torres. So you mean to tell me that Gary Sanchez, who, let's face it, has had a steady, but at the same time, very inconsistent career as a Yankee catcher and we get that he's always in scoring position every time he steps to the plate but if you're a Yankee fan right now and I would just put this out there and just chew on this for a second if you're Brian Cashman and you call him up and I'll say I'll trade you Gary Sanchez straight up for Kyle Schwarber you wouldn't do that Schwarber like I said he'll play some left field now he's a nightmare in the outfield and that's the only position you could put him in now he came up as a catcher but you're not going to do that so he's going to be predominantly DH and you only hope that Giancarlo Stanton stays healthy to the point where he plays a lot of his games in the outfield so you don't have to worry about putting Schwarber there. But you're, there's going to be days where Stanton's going to have to DH. There's all there is to it. But let's face it, if you have Schwarber for Sanchez straight up, you have your left-handed bat, 
your lineup is going to be as, as deadly as it is. It's going to be, be even deadlier because even though Sanchez could hit 40 home runs, Schwarber could hit 50 home runs. And that ballpark, oh, geez. So to me, that would be a wise trade. And just to think, the Yankees even talked about bringing in Josh Hader. Oh, my goodness. I said it last week, people, and I'm going to say it all through the winter and into next year. And I get that the Yankee fans are going to look at me and be like, stop it, Jay Reels. This is reverse jinx. We know what you're up to. Yankees going to be World Series champs. And they don't have to do anything this offseason. But if they bring in Schwarber and they, it somehow, some way get Hader, and we know they have the resource to do it, Clint Frazier, Miguel Andujar, you want to trade Gleyber Torres? Be my guest. They have a plethora of minor league talent that they could just ship off and say, hey, this is an offer I'm sure you can't refuse. Send this guy our way. And that's it. So that's the deal with the Yankees. But as far as the Mets are concerned, this Yohannes Cespedes interview that he had with Eduardo Perez where he came out and said, that he's going to hit 40 home runs. He's going to play in 140 games and he's going to project at 52 home runs, which of course is his number. Now, mind you, this is after the Mets have restructured the contract to the point of, we were thinking that the contract was cut in half from 29 million that he was owed next year to 14 million. But then to the tune of his base salary right now is $6 million. So if he does not happen to be on the IL to start the year or is not on the starting lineup opening day, he would then in turn get $5 more million or $5 million more, I should say, and start the year with an $11 million base salary if he's in the lineup or is not in the IL, which their first game, I believe, is in Washington. And then from there, everything is based on incentives. If he hits 650 at-bats, makes an all-star team, hits X amount of home runs, RBIs, etc., yada, yada, yada. And then it'll be an upwards of $20 million if he reaches all those incentives. So I'm sure Yoannis... Looked at all that and feels confident in himself, his health, his ability, etc. Where he thinks he's going to go out there and pretty much tear it up in an MVP level. And if he does so, fantastic. I hope that's the case. And I'm going to say this as a Met fan. I certainly would not trade him at this juncture where a lot of people thought because he's making $6 million and because he's in a walk year and maybe the Mets get something for him. What are the Mets going to get for him? They're not going to get anything. You do think they get some young players? They're going to get a bad contract back. I'm sure it's going to be a decent player, whomever that player is, but we don't know who that player is. So if you're the Mets right now and you're Brody Van Wagenen, I'm sorry. They cannot look at what he said as a grain of salt or some sort of false promise or false proclamation. If Cespedes really feels and believes that he's going to make an impact on this team this year, then guess what? Eat the money. You better make sure that this guy's on the lineup because he's only going to make your lineup longer and better with the likes of Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil, Ahmed Rosario, Michael Conforto. Uh, that lineup would be lethal if you put him in the middle of that. Robinson Cano, if he remains healthy. And we all know when Cespedes is healthy, he wrecks games. The thing is, is that he's not been healthy. And you would only hope that because it's a walk year... And that he knows he's only going to get $6 million to start. And that he can make an upwards of $20 million And know that there's another maybe payday after that. And I don't care if he does it 52 home runs. Drives in 150. Bats 320. Wins a regular season MVP. And somehow, someway, from my lips to God's ears. Wins a World Series MVP. I give Yohannes a big hug. I say thanks for everything. Good luck to your next team. 
And that is it. No offense. Because if you're the Mets and you would resign him, you can't do that. You just can't. The contract only paid for itself in 2015 when he was about to be a free agent. And of course, 2016 when he signed the three-year $75 million deal with the opt-out. And when he came back on that road trip San Francisco, he didn't do the same type of damage he did in 2015, but it was enough for the Mets to get to the postseason. And we know what happened in that one-game playoff against San Francisco. And since then, it's been an absolute disaster. So... We'll see what happens there. But that's what you have there with baseball. And just a little interesting dynamic with the Yankees. If they do happen to follow through on these rumors with Schwarber or even Lindor. And to me, Lindor is just a waste of time. I mean, why would the Yankees even think about doing that? It's bad enough you got five Maseratis in your garage. Now what do you need? An Aston, you know, an Aston Martin? Or what is it? Uh, Alfa Romeo? Jeez. Hey, I mean, and I'm sorry. If you're bringing in Lindor, Torres has to go in that trade. And if you're the GM of the Indians, if you do not get Torres back, or if you get, I don't care if you get Andujar, Clint Frazier, whomever their top pitching prospect is, Jordan Montgomery, I don't care if you get seven players for him. If Torres is not in that deal, I hang up the phone. Sorry. Because Lindor, although Torres may have a better ceiling and upside because he obviously has a few years younger, but Lindor is a top flight player. So, and he switch hits. Which also helps. Not to say that that makes him better than Glebertoris, but you get the drift. So that's what we got there. The NBA right now is looking forward to hopefully a very Merry Christmas because we all know that's when the NBA kind of kicks off its, I'll say the ABC coverage because we all know they're on TNT and ESPN and NBA TV. They're on a million different channels. But when ABC gets into the mix, that's when you kind of see that the NBA season has quote-unquote, officially begun. You have the three games there on Christmas. The first game, I believe, is uh, Celtics and Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. I should know this by heart. But as I pull this up, NBA always has Christmas Day, which is a good day because when you're home and you're unwrapping gifts and you're with family and you got to have something to watch. kind of like Thanksgiving where you, at least you have the football to watch. Right, so you have Celtics-Raptors to open up. And the Raptors, what a game yesterday. They were down 30 points to Dallas at home and they came back and won 110 to 107. And it just goes to show you that even without Kawhi Leonard, they have certainly been able to weather the storm and certainly no hangover, unlike the NFL with the Super Bowl hangover, but the championship hangover, which would be expected considering their best player left to the Clippers. But Toronto certainly played well. And look, they bounced back against the Mavericks the way they did. So great job by them. Then you have Bucks and 76ers. We know about the Bucks. And how they performed. They had that big game against the Lakers there on Thursday night to the tune of a 111-104 victory. Giannis had a triple-double. Then he comes to the Garden, obliterates the Knicks. Then you had uh, Malcolm Brogdon come back to Milwaukee for the first time and just felt as if, hey, Milwaukee, I forgot what of his quotes were, but he had uh, come out and, not that he said anything disparaging about the Bucks in particular, but he just felt as if the Pacers valued him more. And obviously he's paid dividends to the tune of a 20-8 and record by the Pacers. And remember, they got to a very slow start to their season. So you have the Bucks and Sixers, and we know the Sixers, they've been hot and cold. And the Sixers, it's weird. I know I've talked a lot about Joel Embiid in the past. But the Sixers, they're just so front-court heavy that they're in desperate need for a point guard and also desperate need for a shooter. But they just have no spacing on the floor. And this isn't any breaking news. But when you have all those bigs there, whether you're Tobias Harris, obviously Joel Embiid, 
Al Horford. Now they have a ton of length and they could throw a lot of that length at Giannis. But at the same time, when you're not unable to stretch the floor and everybody's just standing around, that's certainly not going to bode well. And with that coach, as we all know, you, you can't trust as far as you could throw him. So you have uh, that situation with the uh, Sixers. That should be a very good game between those two giants there in the East. And then you have the Lakers and Clippers where the Lakers are the home team. Oh, excuse me. Sandwiched in between, and I'm sure ABC right now, they're shuddering at the thought of Rockets and Warriors. Now, Steph Curry is actually back rehabbing the broken hand, or the, I believe it was his hand that he broke back in the first week, first week of the season. I don't think he's going to be ready to play. I'm sure the NBA's probably inquired to find out, hey, how far along is Steph Curry? Because at least having him play against the Rockets, they'll bring some eyeballs to the sets. Because right now, I mean, who cares about that game? Ugh. That is just a brutal one. And then you have Clippers and Lakers where the Lakers are the home team. So that's the uh, primetime ABC game at 8 o'clock. And then you have Pelicans Nuggets to round out your Christmas Day action. So, And that's what you have there with the NBA. And the Lakers have lost three in a row too. After them losing the second game, uh, or I should say the last game of that road trip where they lost in Milwaukee, and it was the first time they lost two in a row all year, and to a man, they came out and said, it's the last time we're going to lose two in a row, we're going to start a new winning streak, and what did they do? They ended up losing the Nuggets last night. Now, LeBron didn't play. He said it wasn't load management. He had uh, an issue there with an injury that he was nursing, so he was uh, unable to play. But the Nuggets, who have not had a... I mean, they played okay, but certainly not to the lofty expectations that a lot had expected of them coming into the season, but the Nuggets were able to win against the Lakers in LA yesterday so they look to right the ship and it got the Clippers on the horizon so gonna be an interesting matchup there and obviously those are the two best teams in the West the uh, Lakers and Clippers that is and when you look at the rest of the standings here we talked about Milwaukee's off to that tremendous start they have won now what is it 20 of 21 games here which is just incredible they're 27 and 4 and then you have Boston who's uh, continuing to play well here as they beat up Charlotte yesterday, Miami, Toronto, Philly, Indy, even give Brooklyn some credit. Now, the one dynamic that's going to be interesting about Brooklyn is Kyrie Irving has not played in any of these games. And I'm sure, maybe not right now, but you kind of wonder once he gets back and he has a few games under his belt and depending on what their win-loss record is, you're going to wonder if, not to say that the Nets are going to be are better without Kyrie Irving, but the first thing I thought of, considering that they've played well and give credit to Coach Kenny Atkinson, my thing is, is that what is it going to be like once he's back in the fold? And how well, not only does he, he play, but does the team play? Because it's going to be somewhat reminiscent of the Celtics run in the postseason a couple of years back when they went to an Eastern Conference Final without him. And then we saw what happened last year, especially in the postseason. Now again, that was more over a two-year period. But because you could look at that, if you concentrate this now with a young team that's, of course, on the rise in surprisingly a very competitive and tough East, how his presence is going to be played out here once he returns and how they go ahead about their business. Will there be some friction? Will there be a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say side eye or who knows? So that's something to watch out for is all I'll say. Once he's back, once he becomes part of the team, playing on the floor, playing big minutes and... Listen, they've done well without him. Spencer Dinwiddie. Hey, listen, you could go down the list. They have just a lot of lunch pail players and players that certainly have risen in this system by the coach. So that's what you have there in Orlando. 
is going to be the one team or even Charlotte or even the Bulls for that matter is going to be the one team that's well on the 500 to be the sacrificial lamb for the likely number one seed Milwaukee Bucks come spring. And like I said, you had the Lakers and Denver, Houston, the Clippers are four seed right now, but a lot of those teams are bunched up together just separated by a game, game and a half. Portland has actually done a very good job. Remember, they started off very slow. Right now, they got themselves in the eighth seed in the West as well as OKC. They've also righted the ship a little bit and they've been playing better of late. And uh, that's what you have here as far as the NBA is concerned. Now, real quick with this $1 million gamble. Now, we all know, and we talked about it the last couple of weeks, the NBA season is just way too long. The owners aren't going to deviate from the 82-game schedule. Maybe if they can come to grips where they would cut the schedule to maybe 76 games, is it a possibility? It may be, but it's probably unlikely. So what they're thinking of comprising is this $1 million per man over 30 teams for an in-season tournament. Just to make the early part of the regular season interesting because, like I said, Christmas Day, and that's already more than two months into the NBA season, where a lot of teams have already played over 30 games. Where you have these this tournament to kind of stoke the fire for the not only just the NBA fan, but just the casual fan or even the sports fan that is wrapped up into... The baseball at the end of October, or obviously in the tooth of uh, the teeth of an NFL season, or even a college football season for the college football fan, but to have this tournament, and again, this is very in the early stages of this. How this plays out remains to be seen. I don't know if there's a deadline or what have you. I guess it's just being bandied about. Now we, I guess I'd have to. Not I guess I'd have to learn a little bit more about this just to get a better idea of it. But right now, it just seems hokey. Because it's not as if you have a league that's devoid of millionaires. Like, what is one million per person, one per player? I understand maybe for the 12th man on the team, the 13th man on the team, the guy that's just there to play in mop-up duty. But what is that going to do? It's, to me, it's beyond me. I mean, really, does LeBron James need another million dollars to... Or even if you want to look at some of the other teams, Charlotte. I understand their guy's probably making whatever it is. The minimum, or maybe making one million. So if they could double their salary, great. But is that going to really that whatever that in season in season tournament, however that shakes down, however that unfolds, however that it's going to be constituted, is that going to make the competitive play better? Now I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, let's increase it to ten million per. No, I, I don't know. I there just has to be another way. But you know, I'll keep my eyes locked on this as we get closer. If they're going to make a decision on this. I'm sure they're going to look at this thoroughly. Maybe by the All-Star break, they're going to talk about this and get into it a little bit more. Because the NBA, just like the NHL, the early part of the season, nobody cares. And nobody knows when these games are. Just like I said. You know, we talked about it weeks past. Kawhi's return to Toronto. That got forgotten. I know you had Milwaukee and the Lakers the other day. So that was a big game. But even then, you know, not a lot of people are going to be ramped up for it as if it's must-see TV. And then quickly, I want to talk about the college basketball because this is probably going to be the most open field for a champion that we'll ever experience. We all know the Dukes, the Kansases, the Kentuckys, the North Carolinas, you know, all these teams are always going to be there at the end as far as playing for whether it be an Elite Eight, Final Four, etc. But this revolving door number ones over the last 
three, four weeks is incredible. It doesn't matter if you're Louisville or Kentucky, which they play each other this coming Saturday. Duke, North Carolina, Kansas. I mean, these guys have just been in and out of the door when it comes to being number one in the country. Michigan State, all these teams. And I know North Carolina took a blow losing Cole Anthony, one of their big recruits, who is uh, not going to play for some time. So that's the only reason why I bring that up because we all know it's about those three weeks in March. It's all about March Madness, the tournament. But I, unless a few of these teams are going to start to break away from the pack and the cream rises to the crop or to the you know to the top, you don't know from one week to the next who's the best team in this country. And the sad part is that you can't really follow college basketball because unlike 20, 25 years ago when you had players stay for at least two, three, even four years back then. Obviously, no continuity. There is no familiarity with any of these players. It just, you know, unlike last year where you had Duke, which was always a story because of Zion, Williamson, R.J. Barrett, and Cam Reddish, you don't have that. And it's just a shame, but that's how college basketball is. But I just had to bring that up as far as these number ones in and out and not being a clear-cut number one team where you have to say, whoa, yeah, that team, they're going to be tough to beat come March. I mean, for you know, Wofford's going to be the team that's going to make it to a Final Four. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating, but at the same time, you get my point where these teams, although these schools are always going to be up and highly ranked and rightfully so because of the recruits that they get, but there is no guarantee that any of these teams are going to make it to a championship game or win a championship, let alone get to a Final Four, even Elite Eight for that matter. So just something to keep in mind as we uh, get deeper into this college basketball season and closer to March Madness, which is still a couple months away, but uh, just want to plant that seed now so when we broach it later on, we'll see if any of these teams will separate themselves in the pack. All right, and then uh, we'll turn our attention to hockey real quick. There was a big trade in the NHL last week, and I understand the Devils, they did whatever it could this offseason, knowing that Taylor Hall, who was the MVP of the league two years ago, to do whatever it takes to try to keep him here by bringing in the likes of Wayne Simmons and P.K. Subban and guys of that ilk to where they could see if they could make themselves a playoff contender to somehow make a run into the postseason with a good nucleus of veteran players as well as a lot of their younger players. But as we've seen, that experiment certainly did not come to fruition. Taylor Hall gets traded to Arizona for five players, including a number one pick and a conditional number three as well as uh, three junior players. And I understand in this day and age, people aren't going to care about the Devils. or uh, We get that, even though I live across the river from where the Devils play. But the point of the matter is, is that whenever you have a guy that's going to be the focal point of your team, and to the degree where you're bringing in other pieces from other teams to try to either replicate the success that he had two years ago where the Devils did make it to the postseason, but they lost in the first round to, I believe, Tampa. And now that after 30-some-odd games, you see that you're still in last place and you know you're going nowhere fast, that you actually have to blow it up and make a trade. It's a shame for two reasons. One, because you were doing your best to kind of to keep this player, a young core player that was able to put you on the map for one year to be an MVP. And then here it is two years later, you have to trade him. But then number two, and the smart thing they did was do that, but now you wonder, are they going to go ahead and see if they could trade off the other pieces that they got to kind of bottom out and start over? Now, I'm sure Wayne Simmons has been a lot of rumors with trades, maybe even to the Toronto Maple Leafs. 
But then also P.K. Subban, who's making a lot of money, and I understand that may be a tough contract to deal with, and you may have to bring a bad one back, but who knows. But that's just the nature of sports sometimes when you're not trying to rebuild. You want to go ahead and see if you could piece it together and somehow, someway, just make it to the postseason, maybe get hot, win a round, maybe two, and then hopefully get to re-sign your player. And it's just a very, it's just a roll of the dice to see if you could keep one of your star players, unlike what the Islanders did. And even though that situation was a lot different because Tavares said that he was going to stay and obviously with the new project that's going up in Belmont with the arena in a few years, but we all know Tavares wanted to go home and the Islanders were left standing at the altar. But uh, that's old news. But the thing is, the point of the matter of bringing it up is that if you're an organization in any sport, and you know that you have your star player that you want to appease and you want to show and prove that you want to get better and improve. But when it doesn't work and you could see clearly that it's not going to work, do you have to blow it up? Want to blow it up? Or even more so, try to continue to build and let that player know that, hey, we want you beyond this year despite the fact that you may get him for nothing. And in this case, they figured, uh-uh, 30-something games, we're out. We know that he's going to walk. He's not coming back. Even if they brought Wayne Gretzky back you know, 35 years ago to uh, play for the Devils, there's no way that a guy like Taylor Hall is going to stick around and go through a rebuilding process, etc. So that's what you have there. And in the NHL on a whole, again, nothing's really changed there. I know I feel like I sound like a broken record week in and week out when it comes to this. But, uh, you know, Capitals are still flying high. They look like they, right now, and again, championships are on one in late December, early January, but they look like to be the best team by far. Bruins continue to play well. And uh, everything is pretty much the same. Although Arizona, I will say this, they made the trade, and Edmonton, who had held the top spot, now they're only separated by a couple points, but Arizona certainly played well since the trade. And right now they hold the top spot in the, Pacific, with Vegas tied there and in Edmonton a couple points back, Calgary, etc. So we'll certainly keep an eye on that as we get deeper into this NHL season. And then to bid adieu for this edition of the J Reels podcast, my hero in zero of the week. My hero of the week is now retired Major League second baseman Ian Kinsler. Ian Kinsler was more known as a Texas Ranger, also played for the Detroit Tigers, and did win a World Series with the Red Sox two years ago, 2018. Well, Kinsler has stepped down, actually one hit away from 2000. So he felt that it was time to call it a career. Again, 14 years in the major leagues, it was a very good stick. And for him to take a step back and not go for a milestone, which would be, hey, listen, 2,000 hits in this day and age, we understand that the barometer is 3,000 when you think about the Hall of Fame, and not to say that Ian Kinsler is anywhere close to the Hall of Fame, but for him to take a step back, I'm sure he realized that there weren't going to be a lot of opportunities left, and why hang around, even just to get that one hit. So kudos to him. He's my hero of the week. And in my zero of the week, I'm going to point this, I guess, at a bunch of media outlets, but the first media outlet I got to just slaughter here is ESPN. Why is SportsCenter... Uh, and ESPN in particular, and I'm sure Fox Sports 1 and any of the other outlets out there have glorified this as well. But why in the world are they showing the highlight of an almost dunk where John Morant almost pulled a 
Vince Carter over Frederick Weiss, if you remember, in the games in 2000, the Olympic Games with the Dream Team back then, when, uh, of course, the famous dunk that I know Nick fans will certainly want to forget, where it would have been a spectacular dunk, obviously, if Morant would have finished it, but he did not. But SportsCenter wanted to highlight this for what reason? That's like saying Drew Brees, and we know his arm strength isn't the same, but he threw a 100-yard pass that Michael Thomas, it slipped through his hands, and it fell in the back of the end zone, but no, because he threw it 100 yards, you have to show it, even though the ball was dropped. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And kudos to Michael Thomas, by the way, who now has the all-time single-season reception record as he broke Marvin Harris's record of 143 yesterday with still one game to play. So who knows? He may even top 150 by next week. So congratulations to him. But my zero of the week is ESPN highlighting the non-highlight, which is just a disgrace. And I gave you the comparisons. It's like giving a medal to somebody who participated and was in last place. So jokes on them. Bad job by them. They are my zero of the week. So that will do it here, people. But guess what? I have a little Christmas gift for you. A little programming note. So on Christmas Day... I have a special podcast, and if you're a Pittsburgh Steeler fan like I am, and I was fortunate enough to get this man on, and God bless him for spending over an hour with me to discuss his career, the game today, and a bunch of other things, I had former All-Pro NFL linebacker LeVon Kirkland, who played in those mid-90s Steeler teams, so we talk about that, we chronicle pretty much his whole career in Pittsburgh, but we also talk about a Super Bowl experience, which is a pretty funny story, and you'll get a kick out of that. Also, he played at Clemson, so I tried to get a prediction out of him, and he had a very interesting answer for that. So that will come on Christmas. So when you're unwrapping your gifts and you're playing the Christmas music in the back, if you want to take a break and listen to a very good interview that I had with LeVon Kirkland, please feel free, fire it up, and uh, play it while you're cooking a little breakfast and uh, getting into the holiday spirit, as I have that gift for you come Christmas. So you definitely want to peep that. And also, speaking of gifting and Christmas, and you hear sirens outside right now, If you could give the gift of this podcast to whomever it is, and it's free, people. We all know that these podcasts, you know, it doesn't come at a cost. So if you could share my podcast with whomever likes sports, loves sports, is engaged with sports, whatever it may be, I would greatly appreciate that. Of course, you could subscribe to the podcast, have them subscribe to it, your family members, friends, foes, whatever it may be. All you got to do is just go to wherever you get your podcast, whether it's on Google, Apple, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Podcast, uh, Player FM, CastBox, all of those. Because what that's going to do is just not only going to increase the visibility of this podcast with the many others that are out there, but also generate interest for the likes of guys like LeVon Kirkland, a former player, to get on this podcast to share his thoughts about his career and generate the interest among those guys, whether it's the former or current athlete, the writer, the sportscaster, broadcaster, blogger, whatever it may be. Because I'm here each and every week and hopefully to get up to two a week, which is my goal to not only tell you what's going on in the world of sports, but to have somebody in the world of sports to be interviewed on this podcast is really what I'm trying to get at. And again, without your participation, people, it uh, it doesn't go unnoticed because I'm always keeping an eye out for those who are following or listening to the podcast. And if you could do so by subscribing, leave a rating, post a review, I would greatly appreciate it, as well as... You want to leave a message on any of my social media accounts, hit me up with a DM, an email, with any questions, comments, criticism, or praise, whatever it may be, you could do so at the following. J Reels on Instagram, J Reels 1, the number on Twitter, the J Reels podcast on my Facebook fan page, 
And an email address is thejreelspodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to do that, as well as any contributions to the podcast when it comes to production or even merchandising, which I'm looking to do, get into. You could do so at www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, Patreon, P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy, dot com slash Podcast for any contributions and again, forever indebted. But please, people, give the gift of this podcast to anyone out there. You could just go right to your phone, podcasts, open it up. All you got to do is just hit that little arrow where you could share it with people, share it on your social media accounts. I'll do the same. If you share it with me, I'll post it out there as I do each and every week to bring you everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J. Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. You'll hear me on Christmas Day with my special podcast, but whatever you do, enjoy your Christmas Eve with your family, friends, loved ones, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Boxing Day. Well, that's a 26, but you get my point, everybody. So until then, and until on Christmas Day, when I bring you that special pod, on the flip, baby.